Will you turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 19? Um, we are going to be looking at verses 1 through 7. This is a, a peculiar passage, uh, one in which no commentator uh, uh, is, in, uh, is in agreement, really. I, I found that there are so many different varying views upon this text on what's going on. Uh, entire uh, doctrines have been unfortunately created out of this out of this text uh, that I think have been, mis, uh, that have been misguided and unfortunate, even damaging uh, to the church. But there's also been attempts on the other side to, uh, to try to make sense of it and to fit it into uh, some sort of airtight, systematic theology grid. And what I want to say from the get-go is, is that there's mystery involved in the text. Uh, and Luke is not trying to give us a theolo- he's not trying to be prescriptive. He's not giving us a theological grid. What he's doing is recording the early church uh, and the spread of the gospel uh, and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And there are some times where the things that happen within the book don't fit into our theological grids, uh, and, and we need to accept that, uh, that there's mystery involved. Uh, and so this text uh, is, is a fascinating one. It has to do uh, with Paul coming to uh, Ephesus after traveling uh, and discovering 12 disciples, it says. It doesn't, say, uh, it doesn't say what they believed other than that they had come to some kind of belief in Jesus. We don't know to what level uh, they were baptized into the baptism of John, uh, baptism of repentance. Uh, they had not heard of the Holy Spirit Paul preaches the gospel to them uh, in fullness. They're baptized in the name of Jesus. He then lays hands on them. They receive the Holy Spirit and immediately begin to speak in tongues and prophesy. Uh, and because of this text, there have, been, uh, there have been camps that have actually created a sort of a two-tier salvation um, out of this text, basically saying that uh, there's, it's one thing to have saving faith and Jesus, then there's the second stage in which you receive a baptism of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and I think that that uh, is a, a misfortunate reading of the text. Uh, and to take one passage and create an entire theological grid and to even um, to add to the gospel, uh, the, the work of Jesus. When we receive Jesus, we receive the Holy Spirit. Uh, we are born again and made new and brought into the kingdom. Uh, that doesn't mean that we don't have subsequent fillings of the Holy Spirit, uh, nor, does it, nor does it negate the fact that there are times when we experience the presence of the Holy Spirit in more manifest ways than others. What I wanted to say is that the gospel remains the same. It always has been the same. It continues to be the same. It's about the saving work of Jesus, reconciling the Father, reconciling the world to himself through the, the life, the death, the resurrection, ascension, and the sending of the Spirit. Uh, and we need to know that, that that gospel is the same, but how we experience the gospel as people, as individuals, varies. Uh, and what I want us to see out of the gate is that our stories even show how different it is, that our, how our experiences were different and how we came to faith. So um, before I read this text, I just want to share with you guys my own journey uh, as a Christian, because I want to basically pose this question before we read the text, I want, and, and we start to form our own opinions about what's happening here. So I came to faith uh, when I was 28. But really, I would say that I had a, a, a faith journey when I was little. I mean, when I was a little boy, my, my nana used to take me to church, and I believed fervently in Jesus. 
I don't remember anyone ever explaining the grace to me or the gospel to me. I just remember as a little boy, some of my earliest memories, this is actually legitimately one of my earliest memories. When I was about four or five years old, um, my mom was a, a really intense smoker. Um, she quit when I was in like second grade. She came to faith when I was in third grade. Uh, but when I was a little boy, I remember my mom just being a chain smoker. And I was convinced for some reason that smoking led to hell. <laughs> um, I don't know who told me that. I think maybe I just thought fire, cigarettes, fire, they smell bad, must be like hell. Um, so what did I do? I was so paranoid uh, that my mom was going to go to hell from smoking that I would, I would get out of bed at night and I would steal her cigarettes out of her purse and she would find piles of them like in the closet like in a little like pyramid. I'd like make little mountains out of them. And I don't know what I was doing. I don't know if I was like, you know, offering it as a sacrifice to a God that might send my mom to hell for smoking. Uh, obviously, my, my understanding of the gospel was, was very limited. But the point is, is I, had, I have a memory of, of having faith in Jesus, but there was no manifestation of that. And when I got older, I was even baptized at 13 at a church uh, that I was a part of, but I didn't understand the gospel or grace. And by the time I was 15, I completely rejected all of it was wrapped up in my own pursuits and, and all the things that the world has to offer. By the time I was in my 20s, I was pursuing music in Seattle. And then something happened. After I got married, and this is how peculiar, and what I'm trying to lay out for you is how varied, because I'm sure your story is not exactly like mine. Same gospel, but different experience, different journey, uh, these, these transitions into faith that happened. And I don't think that, I do think there's a point where you are dead and you come alive in Jesus. And I don't know when that point is for any of you. And I don't know actually when that point was for me. Um, I say that it happened when I was, when I was in, in my late 20s, because what happened, I had a dream after I was married. I had a dream that angels came to me. And in the dream, the angels told me that I was almost beyond saving. And I woke up really freaked out because it was a very real dream. Even the dream, in the dream, the angel even gave me its name, which I won't repeat because I'm superstitious. Um, so, because I'm not sure it was good. I don't know what was going on. And I don't even know if it was anything other than a dream, but it was enough to actually cause me to grab a Bible that my mom gave me when I was 21 and to begin to read the gospels. Uh, and, you know, that coincided with me losing my record deal and becoming disenchanted and my wife being disenchanted with me. And thus began this kind of existential crisis, late 20s. I began reading through the gospels and I become compelled by Jesus. I'm like, Jesus, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I don't even know how I came to a full understanding. Maybe it was seeds that were planted in my life as a child, but there was just something about the words of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus that just resonated with me as true. And I'm like, I believe this. I believe it. That belief led to me all of a sudden going to a little Calvary chapel. And that Calvary chapel, I went to for about a year. But in that year, my wife was freaked out. She's like, what? You're you're a Christian now, and, and, and that led to me just getting up every day, reading extensively everything I could read, all the apologetics, all the arguments why what I believed actually made sense, because I still was doubting it. And just so you know, I don't know exactly when I was saved, because I literally prayed to be saved probably a thousand times that year. Like every day, I'm like, Ugh. you know, it cannot possibly hurt to just pray one more time. Jesus, come into my life make me new. I believe in you. I'm like, but I don't know if I'm born again. And, and then the scripture says that you can have assurance of your faith, but I'm not, 
sure. And then I would have friends say like, the fact that you're that worried about it tells me that you're okay. And I'm like, I, no, that doesn't mean I'm okay. Because, and then I heard about, I'd hear about doctrines like election. I'm like, what if I'm not chosen? It doesn't matter how bad I want it. And then I'm like, this was a bad, bad road. I was on a mental trip. And then, and Darcy is like, and the reality is, is that you're still kind of a jerk and still self-focused and you're still trying to pursue music. And now on top of that, you're zealous for Jesus. And I'm not really seeing any changes. And so, so the question is, 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 uh, so did, did it, was I, when were they saved? I need you guys to tell me. I don't even know if I should be your pastor. No, I'm just joking. Uh, so I got to this point where I'm like, I'm crisis. And then I remember my pastor gave me a, a series of teachings in the book of Romans, chapters one through six by a guy named Charles Price. I will be forever indebted to him. I've never met him. He doesn't know that his ser- God used his sermons to change my life. I listened to all six sermons uh, or all six hours of sermons uh, in, in one day. I was so blown away by them. And I listened to all six hours of sermons again the next day. And at the end of the day, I got on my face and I just began to weep. And I realized that I didn't understand the gospel and its fullness. I, I'd put my faith in Jesus intellectually, but I had not given him lordship over my life. I'd not submitted. I'd not surrendered anything. I thought, now that I have Jesus, he'll for sure make me famous. If I give my, if I, I was, I was still working in that, that realm of making deals I wasn't accepting free grace. I was working on this kind of contingency offer. Jesus will save me if I'm good enough. Uh, but, I, but it was a legitimate transformation over that year. I mean, as far as my focus and what I was obsessed with. So the question is, is did I get saved when I had that moment of weeping and submission? Because it, tra- it changed everything. I went home and quit the band, cold turkey. I, I told my wife I repented. She didn't even know what repentance was. I'm like, I repent. She's like, I don't know what that means, but you should be better. And all I know, all I know is that I began to just be a different man, and she began to see some legitimate changes. All that to say is that that journey, I, I don't know when it happened, but there was a point when something radical happened. Um, and, and I don't think that that matters, actually. I think what matters is that the gospel really does save people, that Jesus really does save. And some of us are freaked out. And some of you guys, and I've met people. We were, Hattie and I were in, in New York and we met with a, a, a girl, Adriana, who was a part of Door of Hope for, uh, for the first six or seven years before she moved to New York. And she, her story was similar in the sense that she came to Door of Hope and she started hearing about Jesus. And she goes, I don't know when it happened. I just know that one day I started finding that I wanted to think about Jesus, that I was thinking about Jesus more. All of a sudden I was engaged in the community. And so when did that when did I cross the threshold from death into life? She doesn't know. My wife, on the other hand, she was nursing Henry in the middle of the night and was praying again and again, Lord, draw near to me and I'll draw near to you. And she has this totally supernatural experience where Jesus just reveals himself by the Holy Spirit. And I wake up the next morning and she's like sitting in a chair, like practically glowing, like some painting. I literally knew, I'm like, what, what happened to you? And she's like, I don't know, I found Jesus supernatural. It's always supernatural. And sometimes it's a supernatural journey, and sometimes it's a supernatural moment. But the fact is, it's still Jesus who saves. It's still Jesus who gives the faith. And so I want to just set us up 
with that because I think this is really important because it, what, what I'm trying to say is that when we look at this from the outside, it's, it's easy to try to say what's going on, but the text doesn't tell us exactly what's going on. And what I want us to see is that there's something, there's some peculiar, unrepeatable realities in this story, but there are some universal truths that we need to cling to when we read through this text as well. Now, let me just catch you up uh, before we read Acts 19, verses 1 through 7. Paul, as we left, him, left off last week, was in Corinth. After Corinth, uh, he shipped off uh, to Caesarea, then went up to Jerusalem, back to Antioch, then off again, um, what is seen as Paul's third missionary journey, going back once more through Galatia and Phrygia, in other words, through central Turkey, and then ends up back at Ephesus. Now, when he left, uh, when he left Corinth, he actually brought with him that married couple that came from Rome, as I shared with you last week, Priscilla and Aquila, um, and obviously they were such significant members of the church that he saw them as valuable uh, in his travels. He takes them with him uh, and, and leaves them uh, in Ephesus. Now, while they're in Ephesus, uh, there is a man that comes uh, from Alexandria, uh, and his name is Apollos. And Apollos is this eloquent man who has a truncated understanding of the gospel, and I think this is important because his truncated understanding of the gospel, which is that he didn't know about Pentecost, he didn't have an understanding of the Holy Spirit. Um, I don't know if he had a full understanding of, of if he was just proclaiming Jesus's teachings or what the full, the full extent of, of where he had holes in his theology, but there were some serious holes. Um, but he was so persuasive as a communicator and Priscilla and Aquila noticed his gifting and how he was able to refute from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah, that they did something really profound. And I just think it's worth noting that in chapter 18, when they heard him speak, they didn't rebuke him publicly for where he had error. They took him aside and they explained to him a fuller, more robust understanding of the way. And then he became this powerhouse communicator in the church. But I believe that what we have in Acts chapter 19 is a little bit of the aftermath of where he was faulty in his teaching. Um, and Paul now comes back to Ephesus. Um, Apollos has gone on to Corinth. And here we have Paul addressing a group of what are called disciples, disciples of Jesus on some level, but who do not have an understanding of, of, the, of the gospel. And so Paul brings the gospel to them. Now, the question that is often arisen is, were they saved? Were they true believers? Um, because they had not heard of the Holy Spirit. And I can't answer that question for you. I don't know, just like I can't tell you when I actually got saved. I think it might have been when I was breaking, I think Jesus was honored by me breaking my mom's cigarettes uh, and just saved me, right? No, I don't know, I don't know. <laughs> uh, I, I enjoy pipes, so I can't really complain too much. I do think they smell better. Uh, all right, so please don't email me about the danger of uh, lip cancer with pipes. All right, Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 7. So here's, here's where we land. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus, and there he found some disciples. So there is this ambiguous term, disciples. We can assume that they are disciples of Jesus, of the teachings of Jesus, of the way. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they believed in Jesus and the work of Jesus. I mean, he's, he's insinuating that, but what was their belief in? Um, and what is it that they experienced when they believed? Uh, and this is why there have been some who have tried to create kind of this 
this two-tiered doctrine of salvation, which I think is, is unbiblical and not warranted based upon the, the letters that we find in the scriptures that actually focus in on the theology of salvation, such as Romans and Galatians and the letters of Paul, and even, even uh, the fact of the gospel that, that faith in Christ is what Christ demands. Uh, and it's, and we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. And it says, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So they don't even know what he's talking about. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. That's significant. Uh, John's baptism was not the, is not the same baptism that we participate in, that we will be participating in today, as those who are watching and those who are actually being baptized. Uh, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance uh, that John was calling Israel to prepare itself uh, for the return of the, or the coming of the Messiah, to get ready, uh, to cleanse themselves of their idolatry, um, of their rebellion against Yahweh, and the belief that God actually would send a redeemer. And so John was preparing the way for the coming of Jesus. Our baptism is a celebration of the fact that Jesus has come, that he has lived the life that we could not live, that he died upon the cross of Calvary and was resurrected. We die with him, the, the symbolism of being buried with him in death and being resurrected with him in the newness of life. Uh, so it's a different baptism. And Paul goes on to explain that to them. And he says, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. They already say they do believe in him. So that baptism of repentance is, is not is not what was necessary. Um, once again, I don't believe that Luke is giving us everything that Paul says to them. This is a, these are abbreviated conversations uh, to give us a quick synopsis of the early history of the church. Uh, and then what happens? On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and were prophesying uh, there were about 12 men in all. So here, I think I just want to encourage you. It's very dangerous. As N.T. Wright said really profoundly, he said um, that we can have too much of a mono, monochrome view of early Christianity and what went on, that, that anyone with detailed experience of the life of the local church over a number of years will know that however people are taught, uh, everybody's experience, as I just began sermon with, my own experience, is varied in how we respond to the gospel. And some people come for, to church for a year, hearing and hearing, and then something just clicks with them one day. And they're like, I thought I was a believer, and then this happened, and I discovered that I was a believer. And I, I think that this is the beauty of the gospel and the way that the Holy Spirit draws people to the reality of who Jesus is. Uh, and so I think that it is dangerous for us to try to create, try to read too deeply into what is happening here because we don't understand what was happening. We don't know if these guys were true believers or that there was some sort of, this is some sort of in-between period as some have, some have said that, that the gospel was, uh, that Pentecost was working its way out in concentric circles out into the, it starts with, with the followers of Jesus, then works out uh, when Pentecost comes to the 120 and then out to, the, to those Jewish believers and then from the Jewish believers, Peter and Cornelius and the family to the Gentiles and from the Gentiles out to the whole world. Maybe that's what's going on. Maybe this is some peculiar moment in history. Maybe they weren't believers at all and they had a wrong understanding of the gospel. I don't believe that that's what's important for us right now. 
I think what's important for us in this text is actually to figure out what is the universal principles that are true for all true believers. And these are the true, the, the four universal ex- principles or the universal experience of all believers. And it comes in a grouping. Um, so what are those four realities that we find in this text? The four realities that we find in this text is repentance, belief in Jesus, baptism, water baptism, and finally, the gift of the Holy Spirit. These are four realities that are universal for all true believers. No matter what your particular faith story is, if your faith is in the living Christ, the God who is reconciling the world to to himself through Jesus, uh, these realities are universal for the church. And so I want to actually work through those through these four realities because I think it's important for us to understand them. And let me just share with you Ephesians chapter 4 verses 4 through 7 says it best. There is one body and one spirit just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us. Notice there Paul switches to the unique experience of each person according to the measure of Christ's gift. So let's begin with repentance. So notice that Paul asked them, he says, first of all, they're called disciples. So they're they're following after Jesus. Uh, Even though they have, maybe they have a truncated understanding of who he is, they are genuinely trying to follow Jesus. They have put their faith in Jesus, even if it's not a full robust picture. It shows us how important it is to preach the full gospel, uh, to preach the whole gospel, which should include life, death, resurrection, ascension, and the sending of the Holy Spirit. I always say that the entire life of Christ has saving significance, and I think that's really important. But if we begin with repentance, I think that that's lined up in the fact that they were called disciples and that they even were baptized into the baptism of John. Now, we're not called to be baptized into the baptism of John, but we are called to repent. And I think it's important to understand the concept of what repentance is because we often have a misunderstanding of repentance. We think of repentance as telling God, I'm sorry for the little thing that I did wrong today. Oh, Lord, I messed up. I'm sorry. That's not repentance. Repentance is actually in, uh, is, is fully in view for us with these 12 followers. They're disciples of Jesus. What does that mean? What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? It means one who follows Jesus in the way of Jesus. And so what I would say is that repentance in its truest meaning is, is, a change, is a change, even more than a change of mind, it's literally a change of trajectory or a change in, in what it is that you are following. So true repentance is actually the removal of yourself from the throne of your heart or whatever it else might be on the throne of your heart, that Jesus might take his proper place, that you are no longer following your own dreams, your own ambitions, your own hopes uh, without regard for others. But now you are following King Jesus and you are following in his ways, in his steps. This is why Jesus always, his call always includes a follow me, which says that he's actually going somewhere that the Christian life is not a static thing, but we are actually daily called to follow Christ. Now, what is the default setting of the human heart? The default setting of the human heart, even as one who has been born again, who has experienced regeneration, we have this incredible ability to resurrect the old man, the old woman that died with Christ. 
And what I mean by that is we tend to default back to that desire to control our own lives. This is why repentance is not a dirty word. It's not something that just happens before you get saved, but repentance is a continual act of the believer. For every day, we are told to present ourselves as living sacrifices. That is, every day you will find that there is some point where you took control of your own life without regard for Jesus. You might be doing it right now. You might be playing a game on your phone because you already lost interest because I crossed the 15-minute mark. I don't know. Uh, And you might email me because you're offended that I called you out on the fact that you're taking control of your own life. I don't know. But the fact is, is that repentance is something that all of us are participating in a daily basis. But at the, at the beginning of that life of, with Christ, what is the call continually? What does Peter say on the day of Pentecost when he preaches the gospel and 3,000 are saved? What does he say? He says, repent and what? Be baptized. Repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And you will, receive the gift of, you will receive forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. So repentance is a change of direction, a change of trajectory. You're no longer following after the whims of the world, but you are following a new authority, the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. You are following King Jesus. And this is why it even says, and I think this is so important for us to understand, what brings about repentance in our lives? What actually causes us to want to cast ourselves at the feet of Jesus. It, it's not, it's not, it shouldn't be fear. It shouldn't be motivated by fear. Now, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's true. But what we are told in Romans chapter two, verse four, or do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? In other words, we need to repent because what is sin then by its very definition? Sin is not the little things you do wrong. It's a rebellion against God's rule over your life. Jesus came to break that authority, the authority of death in the dominions of darkness. He stepped into our sin. It says, he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. Why? Because he loves you. Because he's crazy about you. Because it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. When we realize it's not us or it's not God who has is, who is turned his back on us. It's us who have turned his back, turned our backs on him. That's why we ask like, the question, the theological question is, did the cross, did the atoning work of Jesus change something in God or did it change something in us? And I would argue that it changed something in us, that God has always been a God that is pursuing us in love and that Jesus is the solution to the dilemma, which is not God's unwillingness to meet us in our brokenness, but our unwillingness to receive his love and grace. It's powerful. They repented. Repentance is a universal experience for every true believer. The second uh, reality is this, is that they had faith in Jesus. And that that is a universal experience for every follower of Christ. I mean, faith in Jesus would make sense if we're Christians, where Christ is in the name, uh, and that means that there is no other way, no other name under heaven by which one can be saved. That's why Jesus said, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but ex- except through me. And then it's like, well, show us the Father and it will be sufficient for us. And he says, have I been with you so long that still you do not know me? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Jesus is the Father's final word to the world and continues to be that final word. And I think it's important for us to understand that faith, in Jesus is not, as, as I've said before, intellectual assent that he's the son of God. 
Jesus himself said, even the, uh, we're told, in, excuse me, in James, uh, that, that even the, the demons know who Jesus is and tremble, but they're not objects of his salvation. In fact, it was the demons who always recognized him when he walked upon the earth. Faith in Christ is not identifying that he is who he said he is. Faith in Christ is a disposition toward God that allows God the right to be God in and through our lives. I think it's important for us to understand that concept of faith. I always like to use the illustration. Uh, if, if you guys have been to the Northeast building, that we own, I, how many of you guys have been there? Most of you, right? So for those of you who haven't, uh, there's, there's, uh, before we opened that building, I, I was trying to come up with a way to make the sanctuary really beautiful and to not have to buy really ugly stackable chairs. And so I did something really weird and, and I, I talked the elders into it because it was cheaper than buying ugly cheap chairs were still more expensive than buying vintage mismatched chairs, which I thought were kind of cool because it becomes kind of representative of the diversity of the community of faith, but being one body and, I, and it also just looked cool. So I, so I, I over three months bought every single chair <laughs> that went in that building. Um, and, and I always like to use the example that faith, when you put faith in that chair you're sitting on, uh, it's not, you don't look at it and be like, I believe it exists. Your faith is determined by the fact that you're willing to sit on it. And that faith in the chair is not you doing anything for the chair. It's just allowing the chair to be the chair, which is hold up your body weight. Now, what was fascinating is that that example um, didn't, didn't always fly very well, the Northeast building, because I actually have seen a couple people fall through the chair to the floor. But even then, the illustration actually works wonderfully because faith is only as good as the object in which you place the faith. And I just want you to know that my aesthetic sensibility is not is not on trial here. Uh, the durability. I always say uh, fashion, fashion before function. Um, so, so I think, but I th the point is, is this, is that faith in Christ turns you into a disciple. So repentance and faith in Christ almost become synonymous. I changed trajectory. I'm following after this. I put myself on the throne of my heart. Now I am following after Jesus. And what's fascinating about these 12 is that there seems to be a true repentance, a change of direction, and a desire to follow Jesus. They just have a, 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 not a, a full understanding of who Jesus is um, and that what Jesus came to do, which is you cannot live the Christian life without the Holy Spirit. I think that's really important to understand. Aren't you grateful that Jesus didn't leave you to your own devices to try to figure it out or to white knuckle your way up Jacob's ladder to get to God? Because that's religion, that's not the gospel. And this is why I, I would say that I don't believe they had a full understanding of the gospel. But I also will say comfortably that I don't fully know what their understanding was or where they were in that faith journey. I just believe that the gospel is the same. Uh, so I love this, that faith in Jesus leads to what? And, and, oh, let me, just, let me just ask one question. I think this is a great question to ask. Is it you that's called to have faith? Is faith something that, that, is, that, that you manifest? Or is faith itself a gift? Is faith a gift? Um, I, 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 one of the first worship songs I ever wrote was a song called The Way. And in the song I said, give me love to love you and faith to know you. But it has to be you. If I was to share with you a verse from Galatians chapter 3, verse 23 through 26, it says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under 
a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. You know what's fascinating? If you actually replace the word faith with Christ or with Jesus, uh, the text actually says the same thing and means the same thing. And let me read it to you with that, with that in mind. Now before Jesus came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming Jesus would be revealed or the coming Christ would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by Christ. But now that faith has come or Christ has come, we are no longer under a guardian for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through Christ. Now, what's fascinating is that that's why I would say like we, we like to measure people by their faith. Oh, what great faith they have. Uh, but faith is not what is impressive. That's why Jesus says, even if you have the smallest amount of faith, faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, jump into the sea. Why? Because it is the object of our faith that is the focus. Faith is like a stick shift in a car. Nobody gets into a brand new car, uh, a manual car, and says, man, that's an impressive stick shift. Uh, The purpose of faith, uh, the purpose of the stick shift is to release the power of the car. And I think that that's the whole thing is that our dependence upon Christ, which is a gift from Christ, actually allows Christ the ability to function and fully move through us. This is why the scripture says that Jesus is both the author and the finisher of our faith. Let me just tell you that Jesus is, is the beginning of the journey. He is the gate. He's the path. He's the food, the nourishment on the path. He's the guide along the path. And ultimately, he is the goal at the end of the path. It all begins and ends with him. We'll be singing that in just a little bit. And I think that's important for us to understand. The third universal reality, and this is one that I think many Christians neglect. And if it's you, I want to just encourage you, today's the day, and that's baptism. Uh, It's true that there's a spiritual baptism that when we become born again, we are baptized into one body, regenerated. And that's why I would say the baptism of the Spirit is not something that happens um, secondary to conversion. Because, And this is why I say that. The word baptism means immersion into We are not told to be baptized with the Spirit. What we are told is that there is one who is coming who will baptize you with the Spirit. And what we are told to be as followers of Jesus, having been baptized into his body, is we are told to be filled again and again and again. So I actually think that within charismatic or Pentecostal circles, and if that's your background, and and you utilize that language of baptism, um, you know, awaiting the baptism of the Spirit in, the, in terms of a second blessing. I want you to know that, that the Pentecostal movement, that, that kind of the founders of that, this text is the text that they utilize to kind of create that doctrine. And I, I want to just once again say Acts is not a place that we should be creating doctrine. Acts is, Acts is the early history of the church. And I think that this is also important, that baptism happens at the moment we are born again, we are baptized into, immersed into the body of Christ. But what I think people often call the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a real event and a real reality for many people. And it's what I would call, call experiencing the fullness of the Spirit or that because the Holy Spirit's sovereign. And we'll get to that in just a minute, but he can do what he wants. He can make himself known in, in powerful ways, supernatural ways. Uh, and I experienced that. I share with that with you guys when I went to London. I ex- had this incredible experience of just this overwhelming sense that God really loves me. And even the sense of his very, very real presence uh, in a way that I've not experienced before. So did I get saved then? Did I experience a baptism of the Spirit? I would call that the fullness of the Spirit, or the Spirit graciously showing me how much Jesus really loves me, just like he really loves you. Uh, so 
when we, have, when we talk about baptism here, though, what does Paul do? He explains to these followers, he explains to them the fullness of the gospel, and then they are baptized, not into the baptism of repentance, the baptism of John, which Jesus himself was baptized in, and that's a really mind-boggling thing uh, all in itself, because Jesus was asked John to baptize him into a baptism of repentance, not needing repentance, but it was because he was fully identifying himself with the brokenness of humanity. So powerful. It's really profound. And the father says, I'm pleased with my son being identified with sin. <laughs> so, I mean, just think about that. It's really crazy for us to really think about. But the baptism that these men are now baptized into is the baptism that we are all commanded to be baptized into as followers of Jesus. Now, I just want to say that this baptism that we're going to be celebrating today, uh, some of you are, have come to faith in Jesus but have yet to be baptized, and you're not sure what you're waiting for. And I, I just encourage you, Jesus commanded his great commission, the final words. I think final words are pretty important um, as he was departing. Uh, and he, what did he say? All power, all authority in heaven and earth has been granted to me. And he's like, I commission you to go and make disciples of all nations, uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, uh, and teaching them to observe all that I have taught you. This is the call, is that to make, not make believers, but make disciples. That is, those who have repented, changed direction, placed their faith in me, are now following after me. And one of the first acts of following after him, there's only two sacraments in the church, and that is baptism and communion. And that means visible expressions of the word of the, of the story that is communicated. And the story that you communicate when you are baptized in water is the story of being, being buried with Christ into his death and resurrected into the newness of his life. And it's very similar, as Gary Brashears once said to me, it's very similar to, to a wedding day. He said, listen, that moment, you know, when you raise your hand with your eyes closed and like while everyone's heads bowed, if you want to ask Jesus to come into your heart right now uh, to be your savior and that he would give you the Holy Spirit, that you'd be forgiven of your sins and be made new. Uh, raise your, see, that has replaced baptism for many. And it never was intended to be that. You know what the early church was? It was, you don't do an altar call. You don't even raise your hand. You just come forward and get baptized. That's what Peter did. He baptized 3,000 people. You know how exhausting that'd be? is the sorest arms for days. Uh, but I think that this is the power. And, and what, what Gary pointed out, he's like that moment where we put our faith in Christ, that's like the engagement. But the baptism is like the wedding. It's like, and if you haven't been baptized, it's like you're just extending out your engagement or something. The wet, what's the purpose of a wedding? The purpose of a wedding is to acknowledge before God, family, and friends that you have entered into a covenantal relationship with this other person. And, and it's significant. It's, it becomes a visible sign of, of that reality of, of the love that can't be seen. Uh, but now we make it seen through this public declaration that I belong to her and she belongs to me. That's the reality of, of a wedding covenant. Baptism is the very same thing. It's about your marriage to Jesus. It's we are the bride of Christ. And when you stand before your church family, before God, before the, and this is why I love doing it out in the river, but it's awesome in the, our building as well, now, especially now that we have AC. Um, it might be actually cold today, 
uh, is that you are saying to your church family, and I just encourage you guys, if you've been baptized, come today and support those that are being baptized. But if you haven't been baptized, be baptized. I just want you to know that I was baptized at 13. I don't believe that I was a believer then. I was struggling with anxiety, year two of Door of Hope, severe anxiety. I was visiting a, a, a friend in Santa Barbara who's a retired pastor, and we were, it was, it was a starry night, uh, and we're sitting in his, uh, like in the ground, this beautiful saltwater hot tub that's like built, it was more like a pool, uh, like underground one. And, uh, um, and we were just chatting. I was sharing with him all my anxiety. I was totally using, when you're the lead pastor, like who do you talk to in the church? Like, and so I'm like, I, I was just like, I don't know what to do. I'm like, I was the only pastor at the time. And the church was growing so fast and I was so stressed. And he goes, have you ever been baptized? And I said, well, I was when I was 13. He goes, were you a believer? And I'm like, no. And he goes, you need to be baptized. And I'm like, well, who's gonna baptize me? I have baptisms in like two weeks. I have to baptize a bunch of people and I haven't been baptized. And he's like, and then I was really having anxiety. He goes, and, and I go, would you just baptize me right now? And he's like, sure. And he's like, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, I baptize you and just dunk me right there um, <laughs> beneath the Santa Barbara sky. And it was like, there was something just, it just felt right. And I, I love what Eric said to me. He goes, there's a spiritual reality to baptism. And, and I, I agree with him. It, it's, it's, it's not simply a sign to the, to the visible world, but it's a sign to the spiritual world that you belong to King Jesus. Um, and so if you haven't been baptized, and people ask me all the time, what if I was baptized as an infant? I think that's between you and God. I personally lean toward being baptized. I think baptism is for the believer. Um, there are theologians that I totally respect that believe that even if baptism is administered improperly, it's still a baptism and is valid. And so I think that that's for each of you to decide uh, and let each man be convinced. Whatever is done in faith, whatever is not done in faith is sin. And so I think if you're stressed about it or feel that you need to make that public declaration, do it and do it today. Okay? So enough said about that. So what is the final thing? And we will close. Uh, and the final, the final reality that's universal, and so I, I think these are important. I, and notice I put baptism. Do you need to be baptized to be saved? Well, no, that's problematic. That front loads the gospel. But I do believe that baptism is a command of Jesus, and there is always blessing and obedience. Uh, there is blessing and obedience. And I think that to, to walk in willful disobedience does not bring blessing. Uh, and so I think that that's, that's what's important to say about that. The thief on the cross was was clearly didn't have time to be baptized before he died. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. So we are not a church that holds to the idea that unless you're baptized, uh, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven, which is actually why the practice of infant baptism even began with, uh, was, was started, is the idea that they, we need to baptize them to guarantee that they'll make it into heaven. I believe that we have a good and merciful God and we can trust our, our children and our infants uh, in his loving care. So what's the final reality, universal reality, the gift of the Holy Spirit? What happens? He lays hands on them after they're baptized in the name of Jesus, and he lays hands on them. There's no magic in Paul's hands. I even believe that there is like just beautiful symbolism in that, that we become one body, one family, that the gospel is about the restoration of relationships in three directions. So even touch uh, as, as a community. This is why when we ask you, if anyone needs prayer to come forward and pray, and when we pray for people, we lay our hands on them. Uh, and I think that that's a I mean, we, we all know even, even the science of, of how important it is for a baby to be touched. Uh, and so I think that there's something really, really just very 
real and very personal, uh, which makes sense because the gospel is so personal. Uh, but the gift of the Holy Spirit, uh, when they receive the Holy Spirit, uh, something happens. And some people will say, well, isn't there five universal things? Because they immediately begin to prophesy and speak in tongues. I would not add the outcome of receiving the Spirit uh, to the fifth universal thing, because I believe, yes, the Holy Spirit is the gift, and the Holy Spirit is not a force to be wielded, but he is one of the Godhead, one of the persons within the Godhead himself. He is Lord, and he is sovereign, which means he has the right to manifest himself in and through our lives however he sees fit. And so that does not mean that the universal outcome of repentance, faith in Jesus, and baptism in the reception of the Holy Spirit means that every time you're going to speak in tongues and prophesy. I think that's really, really damaging. And it puts, un, it puts unbelievable expectations upon a community of faith. I personally do not have the gift of tongues. I have friends who do, and I believe in the gift. I'm not a cessationist. I have seen, and I think that the Holy Spirit can give any of the gifts and, and remove any of the gifts because he is the gift. And what is important is not how he manifests himself, through us, but the real importance is how are we surrendered to his power? When it says be filled with the spirit, it's not saying you get more of the spirit. Being filled with the spirit is the spirit having more control of you. And so I want to see the gifts of the spirit manifested all over the place in our community. I would love to see healings, which I have seen, or the, even the spiritual warfare, the casting out of demons, or, or the ability to speak in tongues or word of knowledge or prophecy. I believe all those things are real and they happen. But the, the point is, is that the spirit is sovereign and he has the right to work through his, through his people as he sees fit. The gift is the spirit, not the manifestations of the spirit. I think it's unfortunate even the way that we translate, uh, we translate that into English and Corinthians because it sounds like the spirit gives gifts and that is true, but really the, the, a better way of seeing that in English is the Spirit is the gift who, as his, as his people yield to him, he can manifest, the, the, the manifestations of the Spirit can be diverse and varied um, in how the community is gifted by, that, by the gift, which is the Spirit himself. The greatest gift that God gives is always God himself. And this is why I say that these are the four universal things. And even know this, that the signs that we see here in Ephesus of tongues and prophecy were for the purpose of what? Declaring the reality of the gospel and the truth of who Jesus is. It was validating the very words and communication of the gospel that Paul was proclaiming to these 12. And so I think it's important that we know that the, the, the spirit first and foremost is a missionary spirit who points the world to Jesus who draws us to Jesus. And so we come back to the very beginning. And who was it that initiated? Who was it that drew you to the reality of who Jesus? This is why I'm never afraid to preach the gospel because I believe that when Jesus is lifted up, he will draw all people to himself. And may we live with that kind of faith. And may you understand this, that you cannot function without the gift of the spirit. You can't do it. We need his spirit to live his life, that the gospel is about God actually coming and reestablishing his place in us. May we be conduits where his life is manifested. And this is why it says in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews, Greeks, slaves are free. All were made 
to drink of one spirit. What else are we told? But there is neither male nor female, slave nor free, Jew nor Greek, but all are one in Christ Jesus. So, this is our reality. Repentance, faith in Christ, baptism, and the gift of the Holy Spirit. May that be the universal reality for each of us. Amen?